Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Mantalk.ke. It is the season finale and what a season it's been. Um, thank you everybody for sharing. There's been so many shares on the post on social media. Thank you for sharing with your WhatsApp group, your friends, your mom, your sisters and your dogs. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've had a great time this season. We've had a great time this season and um, a few weeks and there'll be another one coming. Uh, we are back in Kafisi in Karen. Uh, we were here in episode six as well. We had to come back. And uh, we hope that you'll check the links down below. And also in the middle of this video, there will be a short clip that shows you all about Kafisi and what they have to offer. Um, today's a big episode, Oscar. It's a big, big episode. And uh, I think there's some introductions that you let the guests do themselves. Yeah. Because the list of titles, etc., and things they do is extensive. So, David, thank you for joining us. Would you like to tell the people who you are? First of all, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is David Etale. Mm-hmm. Um, Former professional footballer here in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, joined the British Army. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Cool guy. Cool guy. Really yeah. chill. Yeah. Excellent conversationalist. <laughs> color coordinated. Uh, color coordinated. <laughs> First of all, he's coming here with a snapback. Let's talk about that Hello. a little bit. Hello. And he is yeah. one of the most exciting interviews I think yeah. um, we are going to have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Simply yeah. because he's a man who has lived many lives. Yeah. And David, to be honest, it's our honor to have you on the podcast. We are very, very excited to um, go through this conversation that we're about to have with you. Yeah. Yeah, and leading up to that now (laughs) is my first question. Yeah. So obviously, um, there's obviously a lot of negative swell around the topic of masculinity and what it means to be a man. Yeah. So the first question I have for you as um, an African man, former military serviceman, is what is the most positive thing um, that you think you have contributed to society as a man? What is the most positive quality that you have as a man that you've given to society today? I think the first thing that I would say, you know, naturally men are supposed to be defenders. We're supposed to protect our loved ones. We're supposed to protect if you have a family, children. And I think for me, one thing that I came to realize that I feel like it's, it's more impactful out there is me being myself and mm-hmm. me showing that I also have, like I'm vulnerable. I also speak about my mistakes so that people don't look at me like I'm this type of a person that I need to be mm, yeah. to live my life in a certain way. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm human, we all make mistakes and I'm still trying to figure out my life as well. But by doing that, I just want to be as authentic as I can. Mm. When, pe- when I'm speaking, when I'm going for these talks and things like that, when I'm speaking, people can see how genuine I am about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's been your journey? Because obviously you're at a place where you're comfortable being vulnerable and you've mentioned some of the things you've done previously in life. Um, football, yeah. ex-military, now motivational speaker, etc. Where's the moment where you start to be comfortable being vulnerable? What was the moment that made you shift the needle or has it been a gradual process as you've gone along? I think I started being vulnerable when I'd left service. Mm-hmm. But before that, when I was growing up, all I wanted to be was become a professional footballer, just like... Right. Many people who've been born in the ghettos mm. here in Kenya. Mm. 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 And that was my dream. That was my goal. Mm. But um, here in Kenya, when you're playing football, you don't get paid a lot of money compared mm. to mm. other places outside, like, for example, in Europe. Mm. So my journey was I started playing professionally for a club called Kenya Commercial Bank. Mm-hmm. And when you mention to someone that you're playing for Kenya Commercial Bank, the first thing they will be like, you're earning good money. Mm. But that wasn't the case. Mm. For us, it was, you win a match, you get 800 Kenyan shillings. Oh. Yeah. And you draw a match, you get 400 Kenyan shillings. What? And if you don't win a match, mm. the 50 Kenyan shillings that they gave you for lunch, that's all you'll go home with. What? And there was uh, st- people in the stands paying? Yeah. Wow. Okay. But it wasn't people in the stands like compared to mm. European countries where mm. the stadium is absolutely packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there, I moved from Kenya Commercial Bank and then I went to play for Tusca Football Club. Mm. So there at least I would earn a salary, which is around maybe 13,000 Kenyan shillings. Mm. 
And this is which year? Uh, we are talking about 2005, beginning of 2006. Yeah, so mm. if we adjust for inflation, maybe you're making like 20K now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And for me, that wasn't enough. So back then, I used to love fashion a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends who lives in Kangemi, I knew he was a gang leader. He was a thief and mm. they used to rob people and stuff mm. like that. So for me, I was quite young and naive. Uh, so he approached me one day. And remember before that as well, when I was trying to make ends meet, I was still a part-time Matatu driver. What? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So not only are you a former professional footballer, former military serviceman, you're also a former Matatu driver. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. So what would happen is we'll train in the morning and yeah. I'll go for my shift in the afternoon at 2 p.m. Okay. Wow. Just yeah. to make that extra coin. Mm. Mm. And um, this, when he approached me, he said, um, Dave, we need to talk. Mm. And um, he told me, um, I want you to be keeping certain things for me, but we'll be paying you every time we come and collect them right. or any time we bring them back. So I asked him, what are they? At first, he didn't tell me what they are. Because they just bring for you a bag and they say, store this for us. Mm. So for me, the, the first day that we met is mm. when he told me, actually, these are guns. Wow. I want you to be storing these guns for us mm. and we'll be paying you a certain amount of money. Mm. But there's some rules into this. Okay. Don't tell anyone about it. Don't speak to anyone mm. regarding your situation mm. and don't open this bag. Yeah. No matter what you do, yeah. Yeah, don't no break matter those what you do, you don't open that bag. Mm. And so for me, I didn't actually feel like it was anything mm. because I didn't have a good relationship with my father. Mm. Mm. I was those type of people that I threatened to kill my dad one day mm. because wow. he was trying to tell me, I think he knew what I was doing. Mm. And he was trying to tell me, no, this is not the way you're supposed to live your mm. life. Yeah. But I ignored everything. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Why do you think that um, when your dad tried to put a stop to whatever it is you're doing, there was like a, a lot of friction? Mm. That's because, you know, naturally when we are growing up as kids, when parents are telling you something, we always think that we know better compared to what they know. Mm -hmm. So I feel that's something in the society right now that needs to change. Mm. And I've realized that because I've lost both of my parents. Mm -hmm. My dad passed away when I didn't even say sorry to him. Mm -hmm. wow. My dad passed away when Every time he would call me, I've never spoke to my dad for more than two minutes on, on the phone. Wow. You know, that's mm. the kind of relationship that I had with him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What do you think was the root of that? Like, do you, when we just, just to dial it back a bit, yeah. what the relationship you had between you and your father that led you to lead into crime a little bit, because that is your accessory to crime yeah. by holding those weapons, is when it comes to the relationship between you and your father, where do you think the breaking point was? The breaking point was quite simple. For him telling me, this is not how you're supposed to live your life, okay. but you're supposed to live it this way. Okay. And I think for me, him trying to tell me everything that I wanted to do, even becoming a professional footballer, he was like, no, I don't want you to do that. Mm. My dad wanted me to be something else in the society. He wanted me to be academically. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay strong within myself yeah. to an extent where I have a good job. Okay. But because I think he grew up in an era where he knew being a footballer in Kenya, there's no money. What I was doing, it wouldn't lead and take me anywhere in life. Mm -hmm. And I think since I'm the firstborn and I was the only, the only boy, I think he was trying to, in, to instill those qualities of being a man at a very early age. Yeah. And okay. I was trying to reject everything that he was saying to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where our drift came in. There's a, so when we're speaking, firstly, we've only got this far and your story is so captivating. Um, a lot of the guys that reach out to us and um, the reason I'm going to bring this up is because the journey you're at right now, like the point in yeah. your life you're at is where <clears throat> there's an element of scarcity, yeah. which seems to have bred radical decisions and behavior mm -hmm. because of the society you're living in, which was Kenya, even though you're talented, not making enough money, even though you're doing everything legit, you're doing the matatu driving, it's still not enough money and you've yeah. had to lead into you know, the, the crime like you mentioned. So your dad tries to speak to you, it's a no. Mm -hmm. And these, uh, these members of the gang say, do this and you do it. What would have been the, a force in your life that would have made you 
make a more positive decision rather than saying yes to these guys. Because the reason I'm asking is there's a lot of guys that, especially young men in our society in Kenya, that are struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. And there's a massive risk like you fell into where because you're struggling for so long to do everything legit, mm -hmm. when something is presented where there's a monetary gain very quickly, yeah. you think everything else is against me, why not take that path? So I want to know if you could have changed something at that moment, what would have been a strong enough force to make you stay on the straight and narrow and not take on what this man has told you to do? I think mine would have been trusting the process of life. Mm. Mm. Because what I was trying to do at that particular moment in time, I was trying to make as much money as I can yeah. because of everything that's surrounding me. Mm. Okay. Mm. And that is, we are talking about these clubs. Yeah. Mm. There's alcohol involved. Yeah. yeah. There's women involved. Yeah. yeah. So the lifestyle that I would see someone else living, pressure. that is the life that I want. And that's mm. all pressure that you're mm. bringing to yourself. Yeah. So don't, you don't even allow yourself to grow to the next level to try and identify yourself as a man, mm. what your responsibilities are in mm. the society. Yeah, but some guys, it's, you know, on the other side, yeah. as you, you've made it to the other side, it's easy to say, trust the process, easy, yeah. easy to say it's time. Yeah. But I think it's, I don't know if like a young, I'm thinking if I'm 16, 15, mm -hmm. and I hear somebody say, trust the process, I don't know if I believe them. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. feel like you're like, yeah, but <clears throat> all the narratives I'm hearing are not saying trust the process. Mm -hmm. Somebody's still doing it and making it now. Do you see, my, do you see my, what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like some guys will hear that and be like, I know, I know I should trust the process, but two weeks from now, there's a concert and I can't buy a ticket. Yeah. You see, that, that's, that's the same thing that, mm. that's what I was talking about, about, mm. you see the pressures that are surrounding us. Mm. Mm. We try and, try and fit in to do certain things mm. because we're seeing other people doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we try and forget that once you, in your own space, mm. and you're, let's say, for example, in your room or in your house, mm. you're by yourself. Uh, okay. So all these things, you should ask yourself, okay, so my friends are going for a concert, and mm. I have that pressure of getting that ticket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, can I afford that ticket? Mm. So I have to try and look for ways on, even if I'm going to do something bad, mm. to try and acquire that ticket. Mm -hmm. But once you leave that concert, Mm. And you go back to your house or you, wherever you'll be, you ask, was it one? in the mirror, yeah. So it starts with the person, the individual, not the external. Absolutely. Everything that we do in life, mm. it has to start within mm. yourself. Mm. You know, mm. even when someone comes and says that you need to change your ways from this to this, mm. I can come and speak to you as many times as yeah. I can. Yeah. yeah. But if you've not accepted yourself, yourself. Yeah. you know, and realized that <clears throat> this is me, I mm. came on this earth alone. Yeah. I will leave this earth alone. Mm -hmm. No one else will go with me. Mm. Mm. Then that's the time that you'll start realizing that you need to focus on yourself and make sure that everything that you're doing is, a, is something positive out there. That if someone looks up to you, mm. they're like, if it wasn't for David or if it wasn't for mm. Eli or Oscar, I would have been here. Mm. Mm. And that's the joy that I get with yeah. everything that I'm doing right now in life. Right. So you regret nothing? I don't regret that. anything. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's uh, I'm just processing everything you're saying yeah. very slowly. Yeah. Uh, no rush. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's move from the fact that now you've been handed the guns, yeah. right? Mm. So basically the, the gang member from Kangemi hands you the guns to store for him and his crew. Mm. How long did you do this? I did it for almost one year and a half. So for one and a half years, you're one making... Ex years. So were you still playing the football? Yes. Driving the matatus? Yes. So it's not that they were paying you enough to live mm -hmm. the life that you wanted. It's that mm -hmm. they were just giving you... Extra, yeah. They giving me extra money. And for me, playing football and dressing the way I was mm -hmm. and doing all those, those other things, it's just to cover up mm -hmm. me being someone who's storing guns for thieves. And you're doing this conscientiously. Yes. So you, it affected your conscience. You knew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You knew. Yeah. So what put a stop to it? And how did you get out of the life? Because that's another conversation. What put a stop to it, I would say is, I think, first of all, it's, I would say it's God. Mm. Yeah. Because okay. there is someone mm. who came up to me who's, who was a CID and he approached me. Mm. And I remember that day I had just finished training. I was going for my shift at 2 p.m. Mm. And he said to me, today you're not driving the Matatu. Mm. And he said to me, um, I know what you're doing. So I didn't know one of the guys had actually been caught. Mm. So he was actually snitching and saying, 
everyone who's involved and oh. who's keeping this, who's doing this. Wow. So my name came up. Mm. Uh, so this CID guy, he has been watching me playing football mm. for a long time. So what normally happens is once we finish the season, we normally have local tournaments. So where we go to somewhere like Kangemi or mm -hmm. we go to somewhere like Jericho mm -hmm. or you go to somewhere like Ziwani, mm -hmm. where you get um, Premier League players mixing up with the young tucks mm -hmm. in the hood mm -hmm. and then we form a team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like we are playing a tournament and then at the end of the tournament, mm -hmm. there's a prize, there's a prize money, money that yeah. needs to be won. Yeah. So that money we get it now, but we share it most yeah. of it too the young guys who are coming up. Yeah. Not to interrupt you, mm -hmm. but we have an international audience. In Kenya, we have um, the Kenya Premier League. Yeah. And this is all these, all these places he's mentioning, um, Ziwani, um, Jericho, um, are all, um, I'd say at that time, the constituencies or for other countries, provinces. So each province has a team. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. that's how they used to play. Just to contextualize, please not to interrupt. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, you've explained <laughs> better, yeah. yeah. So this guy used to come and watch all these football mm -hmm. matches. So he told me, look, my cousin applied to join the British Army online. Mm. I want to take you to the cyber mm. and you apply. And remember, this is, I've, I've never sat down in front of a computer before and I didn't even know what to do. So the, the CID, so CID is our criminal investigation mm -hmm. department. Yeah. Mm. An agent of the CID came to your game yeah. and picked you up from the game and said, listen, you're not driving any matatus today. You're going to apply to... Con yeah. to Jesus. Wow. wow. Okay. And then um, we went. He did everything for me. Uh -huh. And he said to me, make sure you check your email within three days, which I didn't check. Mm. And then I met him the fourth day and he's like, have you checked your email? Mm. I said, no. So when I checked my email and found that they've responded to me and they've like, because you put your profile there. So mm -hmm. you say, so for me, I think it happened so quick because I was physically fit. Mm -hmm. They would mm -hmm. see that I'm a professional footballer. Mm -hmm. So it was quite easy for them to recruit me. Mm -hmm. So within two weeks, I was in the UK. What did you tell your family was your reason for um, um, being conscripted to the UK army at the time? Because clearly it's based on external circumstances and circumstances really outside of your control. But you have to play a role so they don't know what you were doing previously. Mm -hmm. So what, was, what did you tell your family and friends? Because you have a, you have a network and the Matatu culture, Matatu is public um, transport system, so these are vans that we use here in Kenya for public transportation, is that you have friends who you work with every day, you have a football, you have football players, you have mm -hmm. the coach. What did you tell them was your reason behind it? Actually, I didn't tell anyone about anything. Mm -hmm. The only person who knew what I was doing mm -hmm. was my late dad. Ah, okay. He's the only person who knew what I was doing. And I think it's because of, you know, <clears throat> as parents, they normally have this kind of instincts where they know whether you're doing something right mm -hmm. or you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my dad was um, in the NYS back in the days. National Youth Service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's the one who knew. And <clears throat> it was quite funny because when I went to tell him that if he could help me buy a ticket to go to the UK, he didn't believe me. Mm -hmm. So I had to give him all the letters that I'd received mm -hmm. of me being accepted to go to the UK and join the British Army. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, let me have all the papers. So I didn't know he actually called an office back in the UK okay. just to confirm so legit. Yeah. that this is legit. That's mm -hmm. because of the, I lost, he lost trust in me. Mm -hmm. I used to steal money from him. Mm -hmm. I used to do so many things that if I sit now today and I mm -hmm. talk about it, I feel, yeah bad mm. as a person yeah. but mm. at the same time i don't regret mm. because that's my journey that i had to pass through to get mm. to where i am today i hear that on this on this part of the journey <clears throat> i want us to pause again there's a lot of identity shifting that happens yeah from being a young prospect that can play football at a high level to being somebody involved with gangs to being now called a soldier i want to know about how your identity shifted how you managed that because those are three completely different people. Yeah. The person that says I'm a professional football player to say a girl gets a different response to somebody that says I'm an army man mm -hmm. to a girl or even to your peers. How did that transition go for you? Firstly, changing country and being a completely different version of David to different people as you moved along. That identity for you, how was that? It was tough. Mm. Because remember, 
first of all, I didn't have a passion of joining the British Army. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like I didn't want to leave Kenya at that particular moment in time because everything mm. was happening for me. I was yeah. storing the guns. Mm. I was getting 35,000 Kenyan mm. shillings. Oh. Okay, that's more than what you were getting. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of money Yeah. back, back then. Yeah, yeah. That's nearly, the figure is actually, if you're making 15,000 from uh, football, and then you said 3,000 from, yeah. from uh, that's, so that's 18K. So thirty-five thousand is nearly double. Yeah, what he was making with both roles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Jeez. then you can add the income that I used to get from now playing for Tasca, because now they used to pay us monthly. Yeah, you oh. add on top of that. So I would say I used to have like approximately about fifty-five to sixty thousand mm. yeah. shillings a month. Yeah, that's, mm. that's not a bad income. At a young age. Yeah, yeah. at yeah. a very young age. Right. So for me, the shifting was really tough, and mm. I. I, it got to a point where when we started training back in, in infantry school, mm. we started the training about 124 people mm. and we finished about 21 or 24 people. Wow. The Great. rest dropped out. What made, you, what made you stay in the 21? Because you've gone there without passion. It's a very rigorous exercise. Yeah. It's a new country, new culture. You've left your family behind. Yeah. What now gave you the impetus to stay within in the so, army so what normally happens is any country that has been colonized by the british yeah. they automatically become the commonwealth country mm. yeah so we have other african countries that mm -hmm. other came we were training with together yeah. so i had a friend of mine he's called ben he was a fisherman back in ghana mm -hmm. and um i remember we did this training for, um it's called the bayonet training, where they wake you up around 2 a.m. I did my training when it was winter. It's absolutely freezing. Mm. And there's mm. something that, um, when you're doing this training, they took us to like a small river. It's kind of like a small river, yeah. where when you look on top, it's ice. And they would shout grenade. So when they shout grenade, you have to dive in. Jeez. Mm. So, I did that training and we did it for like about four or five hours. By the time we were going back to our rooms, I was like, no, I'm done with this. Yeah. So my friend was like, David, try and think about it. Mm. My Ghanaian friend was like, you're from Kenya. We've got all this fun. Mm. Why do you want to give up now? Yeah. Think yeah. about the things that you were doing before. Mm. Mm. And that just sunk into me and I said, I'm not quitting. I'm just, I'll just carry on with this. This is what life has presented me with. I will take this new journey and run away with it. So what, what essentially you're saying is, finally, the cost to your conscience for, mm. stor for storing those weapons. Yeah. Because if you were, I, I have a feeling that if you weren't storing those weapons and you weren't living that parallel criminal life yeah. to the one that you had, then you wouldn't be on this path where you essentially found yourself. Absolutely. Mm. Right? So in a way, as much as it was a negative experience, it actually contributed to who you are and the story you're giving us now. So it set you on the path. Mm, mm. Yes. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> just in terms of context, what's happening in the world right now, we're not going to get into it or get mm. into politics, but um, a lot of guys, so you've mentioned the training, how rigorous it is, and then you're prepared for like service, right? <clears throat> a lot of guys are having to skip that step and be put on like the front line at the moment and go and fight for their country, etc. What does the training do to the mind of a person? Because I can imagine for a civilian to go from a civilian that does their normal shopping to now go on the front line and fight, there's a massive process that some people yeah. are having to jump. Mm -hmm. What does that training do to your mind as a man? Like that going into cold water, coming out and still carrying on. What, does, what was that change like mentally for you? That change was tough. Mm. It was really tough. Mm. And you know, one thing that I normally say is, You'll be trained on how to go to war, mm -hmm. but you'll never be trained on how to come back home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason why I say that is because <coughs> we get trained. I was in the infantry. Mm -hmm. Our first job is to protect mm -hmm. the people. Mm -hmm. What we are going to do out there is not something pleasing. Yeah. You're going to see a lot of things mm -hmm. that will affect your mind. And you, your mind is like a camera. Mm -hmm. 
the things that your mind pictures and stores mm. Mm. are things that will even go beyond your human understanding. Mm. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because up to date I'm still suffering from war post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Where I can't sleep at night properly. I have my own episodes. Yeah. It's only that right now I've had my psychiatrist for such a long time mm. where I know if I have these episodes, I know how to control myself. Mm. So that's why you find even a civilian who picks up a weapon and go to war mm. is there are some who are very courageous and mm. that's what they feel that that's the right thing for them to do. Mm. But now the repercussions after mm. is yeah. what is always unknown. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know? Mm. With those repercussions now, there's I've never been able to create the linkage of people in a in a government office mm -hmm. making decisions of normal people to go and physically do something. Like yeah. that connection for me, I find like insane, right? So now when you've done that and you've been serving the country that's led by individuals, mm -hmm. your approach now to the way structure is in society, you know, leaders, etc. do you feel any animosity towards those people that have made the decision of you having to go and fight because of decisions they've made in an office? Does that change your perspective on like government and everything? Or do you still value that experience? No, that changes everything. It's, mm. I'll give you an example, right? Mm. We fought in Afghanistan for almost, is it over 20 years, mm. right? Yeah. The Taliban have taken over the country. Mm. We have parents and we have um, brothers and sisters who mm. don't have their brothers anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because that's why we were told, you're going to Afghanistan or going to Iraq to fight for a common cause. Mm. You get yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you're being told, this is what you're going to do. Right. But now, I'm asking myself, that the Taliban have taken over the country. Yeah. What was our main purpose of being there in the first place? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. You know, just, because mm. if you look at right now, someone like me, I was blown up. I had mm. serious, serious injuries, apart from mm. losing mm. my leg. Yeah. I have friends who are triple amputees. I have friends who've lost families. Mm. I've lost my, I lost my family too. Yeah. You know, and all these things, they just make you get more mm. angry I can imagine. with the government mm. Mm. back mm. in the UK mm. because now parents are starting to question themselves, you know, we feel like we've not been protected enough. Yeah. And I feel that's why for me, politically, I don't like talking about anything yeah. about politics mm -hmm. because yeah. I asked my boss one day, what are we actually doing here in Afghanistan? Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't get an answer. Yeah. Mm. You, the only thing they will tell you is we, are here because we are protecting the people back home. Mm. Mm. National interest. Yeah. There's a, there are two quotes that um, often I find clash. So the first quote is, um, in a functioning society, old men plant trees that they will never sit in the shade in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they know that the next generation will sit in that shade. Yes. <coughs> then the other quote, is old men um, create wars that young people go to die in. Yeah. You get what I mean? Mm. So those two societies are parallel to each other in our world today. Mm. That we're in a place where um, our leaders are making decisions that are based on, let's say, things like climate change and sustainability mm. that yeah. guarantee the future. Mm. Um, I, I want us now to move towards the conversation about you getting into active service. Yeah. So now you are part of the 21 infantrymen mm -hmm. who are now conscribed to the UK army. What was it like fighting for um, and being a military serviceman in the UK, but having, let's say, a Kenyan kind of mindset yeah. and a Kenyan experience? Yeah. What was that experience like? Um, and how did you relate with other, you know, battalion members? Mm. It was dope. <laughs> <laughs> Which was yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right now, remember, mm -hmm. um, my color skin, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now I'm, I'm working next to someone who's got a white skin. Mm -hmm. I'm working with people who are from different backgrounds, cultures. Yeah. So 
We have people from Fiji, we have people from Ghana, we have people from Nigeria, we have people from Cameroon, mm -hmm. we have people from Gambia, we have people from Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the, the beauty of it was we are all brothers and we knew mm -hmm. what we need to do mm -hmm. to protect each other. Yeah. So yeah. when we went to, when people would go to Iraq or Afghanistan, I've had these people saying this a lot, that it's the black people who are normally taken in the, to front the front line, line <coughs> and then wow. the white people are behind, wow. which is not true completely. Mm. When we are out there, we are all the same. Mm. It doesn't matter what color you are, mm. Mm. we are all the same. And the person who's fighting beside you, in front of you, behind you, and mm. we take care of each other. Mm. And for me, that was really dope because it brought um, this closeness and brotherhood mm. that I've never experienced before because mm. I was, I'm the only male in our family. Mm. So yeah. I never had that, yeah. you know, growing up. Mm. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't know what it's like to, to say to another man that I love you, bro. Mm. You yeah. know, it, yeah. it never made sense to me. Mm. But during that environment, I knew what it, I started feeling like, mm. now I know why. Mm. Why um, my white brother would tell me, I love you, bro. Mm. That's because mm. when you go to a war zone, the bullet doesn't select who you are. Yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. The IED doesn't yeah. select whether you're white, black. Yeah. It will hit you the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Do you know what? <clears throat> Typically, the, the echelon of masculinity is a soldier. Yeah. Right. And it's funny that the two definitions of masculinity and like brotherhood and men mm -hmm. are very different to what you perceive it. You're saying the guys fighting, literally the men fighting in the trenches, they're in the trenches. Their bond is something that the civilians might find strange saying, I mm. love you, bro. Yeah. I didn't realize that that happens. I know brotherhood happens. My extent of it is sport. Right. Yeah. You realize there's a, there's a different bond you get. And when you come outside of that, maybe you go back to, you revert back to factory settings. Yeah. But what you're actually telling us is that through being in a quote unquote high masculine situation, yeah. you come out of there with a level, with a softness and an appreciation for your fellow man that you don't get living a civilian life. Yeah. So that's like one realization that you've got from like service. What's another transferable lesson that you could say you learned from the, the, the army that now other people without having to go through that drastic stage can learn as young men mm. without being a soldier. Because that's brotherhood is one, vulnerability is one. What's another thing that guys can learn from soldiers that, you know, they won't learn in the streets? I, th I would say it's love. Just love, man. yeah. Yeah, love. Mm. Love conquers everything that we do in mm. life, mm. Mm. you know. And mm. hate will never, hate will never take you anywhere in life. Mm. Mm. Regardless of your situation, your position in life, yeah. but love will mm. take you a long way. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because when you do something with love, mm. your qualities as a person, mm. they get to be seen. Mm. Yeah. When yeah. you do something with hatred, so many things are covered up That's so true. that will never yeah. be seen. Yeah. Because people will look at you in this perception of, You've created this thing around you, which is hatred, where everyone is bouncing off you. Mm, mm, mm. Where you're creating, if you create this um, bubble around you mm. that is surrounded with love, mm. you get to attract the right people in your life. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And now it's up to you as an individual now to know, okay, this is what I want to bring mm. close to me, and mm. this is what I don't want to bring close to me. Mm, mm, mm. Because Love can create you and can make you create beautiful things out here. And at the same time, mm. they can make you and people would see you differently because mm. we are all born differently. Yeah. The way yeah. I look at things is not the way you might look at things. Mm. Mm. So that's why I keep on saying this to people that for me, my goal is not to be liked or to mm. be loved. Mm. My goal is just to make sure that I'm doing the right things for other people who need to hear my voice. Mm they know that there's always life in everything that we do, mm. despite the challenges that we face. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's incredible. It's insane to me that yeah. the person who has experienced the most war, mm -hmm. the most hostility, is the one who prioritizes love mm. and peace. Yeah. Because I feel like love is a word that's associated with a lot of weakness, 
a lot of fragility. And as men, that is the polar opposite of yeah. what we are meant to express, especially yeah. as an African yeah. black man. Yeah. We are trained to be hard, to be tough. But for you to say that one of the things that war taught you is the value of love and how it conquers all is something that even me as a man, I'm shocked at. So the question I have to ask you yeah. is how do you define love? How do I define love? That's because, first of all, it's because I've been to a war zone. Yeah. And I've seen the mass destruction of what a war zone can do yeah. to a human being. Yeah. You know. And if you look at the world right now, the people who make these decisions, mm. where they sit, where they where do they normally sit? Behind their office. Exactly. Yeah. Behind their desks. Mm. Where are their families? Yeah. In good schools. Mm. What about people like us? Mm. 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 We are also human beings. Mm. If I'm being told I'm going to do something for the right cause and I've been told the truth about it, mm. then I know that I'm doing this because of this, this and this. Mm. But if I'm mm. sent somewhere and I've been told this is why you're going here, mm. and then after you come out of it, you don't see the meaning of why you were there in the first place because yeah. you don't see the fruits or you don't see the effort that you're putting in yeah. of why you were there in the first place. Yeah. So how I, how I define love is just making sure that, you know, that my heart is at peace. Mm. Mm. I don't want to bring anything to myself that I know is going to destroy me mm. for the rest of my life. Mm. Fighting with war post-traumatic stress disorder alone is torturing me mm. every single day. Yeah. And when I'm, when I'm alone, that is when I realize that everything that we do as individuals or as people in the society, mm. what is the most valuable thing that we always want? Mm. Is peace. Yeah. 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 You mm. Know? Mm. But we can never be the same as human beings. Mm. That is just the way the script is written. Yeah. Because if you were born and you have a script in front of you and you were told this is how your life is going to be in the next 10 years, 15, 20 years, mm. as long as you're on this earth, yeah. life would never be interesting. Yeah. But yeah. since we don't have that, that's why we find ourselves that where naturally there are going to be people who are going to be the way they are, as in bad people. And then you're going to find people who've passed through a journey of being a bad person and becoming... Mm someone important in the society mm. where they'll feel that they can change this other person. Mm. Mm. So for me, love is so deep mm. and it's hard for me to define. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It means many things. It means many things to a man like you. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I have another question. Um, now, moving towards, now we've gone through the conscription and we've gone through your growth in the army. Now let's talk about the isolated incident. Yeah. Um, about your injury and the day your military service in essence came to an end. Yeah. Could you walk us through that day and, and what happened? So that day actually, the previous night, so what normally happens is, every time you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, before you go for any patrol, you'll be called in for a briefing. Mm -hmm. So they will tell you, this is your mission for tomorrow, this is what we want you to do, and this is where you're going to go. Mm. So I've been to so many briefings and I've always been so relaxed. Mm. I've never had any problems or like I'm thinking, I, I don't even think about the place where we are going, even after I've been told. But that day there was something completely off with me, completely off. Mm. Mm. And I just, as soon as I sat in that room, the briefing room, I knew, mm. you know, I just had that bad feeling mm. within myself. Mm. I, I didn't actually sleep. I just took my Bible. so. I had a Bible that the cover was in, it's in a metal case. Mm. So I opened my Bible and I started reading. And I stayed like that the whole night. So our mission, I was in a fire support group. So fire support group is a group in the, a group in the battalion that have been specialized to deal with the heavy machineries mm. available to us. So that includes armored vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, 
That includes things we do with the javelin mm -hmm. missile. Mm -hmm. That includes the things to do with um, the heaviest machine gun, which you cannot carry it, but it has to be mounted somewhere, either on the ground or on top of a vehicle. Mm. So when these other troops are going for patrol, we, are, we normally go to the highest peak. So you select the highest peak where you can watch all of them doing the patrols and doing everything. So just in case they get ambushed or they get attacked, we are the first people to counter, to, to mm. counter those people, mm. whether it's the Taliban or it's the Al-Qaeda. So I woke up that morning, I dressed up, and I went to the vehicle that I was driving. So I was driving a vehicle called, it's a jackal vehicle. Mm. So this jackal vehicle, how I can explain it is, you can see everyone. You can see me as the driver, you can see my commander, and you can see the gunner who's at the back. Mm. So it's open at the top. So on my left-hand side, there is my commander who's got the light machine gun mm. mounted in front of him. Mm. At the back, we've got the heaviest machine gun now, which carries a 7.62 bullet. Mm. So it's very, very big. So that morning, my friend was like, Dave, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, you look nervous. I said, yes, I am. And I was nervous because from the previous night, my body wasn't just right. I just knew there was something bad that was going to happen that day, but I didn't know what time, and I didn't know mm. whether it's going to be in the morning, mm. or in the afternoon, or in the evening. So we left. Uh, we went to watch over the troops while they are conducting their patrols and everything, and the whole day was quiet, absolutely mm. quiet. So I have a... So a friend of mine who was at the back, about getting to half six in the evening, he said he's bored and he needs some action. Oh, okay. That's what he said. Wow. And the minute he said that, my, me and my boss, we turn around and say to him, look, don't wish for, mm. for something that mm. we are not ready for. Mm. And before even we finish that, we got ambushed by the Taliban. And it was so bad that the rounds were actually hitting the vehicle mm. and they were firing from different points. So we can't identify where they are. And they were so clever and calculative mm. to an extent where they knew that the soldiers who were doing patrol, mm. they had already left and gone back to camp. So we are always the last people to leave. Mm. Yeah. To leave. So they had already left. So they knew that these are the 12 soldiers who are remaining here, mm. let's ambush them. So that's what happened. Now, I took up my rifle, because you put your rifle on your right-hand side. So I took off my rifle. I was trying to identify where the firing points were, because you, know, you need to identify yeah. Yeah. where these rounds are coming from before you return fire. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, not to interrupt, but mm -hmm. what time of the day was it? So it was about, it was getting dark. Yeah, it's like it 6 p.m. Yeah, 6 p.m. there. Mm. So as I was doing that, there's a round that hit the, head, the, the aerial next to me. Because mm -hmm. you know those vehicles, we have radios and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it hit the aerial and split it into two. And the aerial fell inside the vehicle. And that's when I knew we are in for a firefight here. Yeah. So I said to my boss, look. Mm -hmm. So my boss was trying to fire. I'm trying to identify the enemy. So I, I noticed there's something funny inside the vehicle, mm. and that is the gun at the back was not being fired. Because when you fire that gun at the back, the vehicle normally shakes, because mm. it's so heavy. Mm. So when I looked over my shoulder, my friend had froze. Oh. You know, and that's something that normally that happens to many soldiers when you're in a war zone. Mm. Your body just goes into shock. Mm -mm. So I had to leave my driver's seat and jump to the back to try and shake him up and look, look, we need to get back to this. Because he's one of the best soldiers that I've ever worked with. Mm. And as soon as I got him back, he was straight away on top of it. And for some reason, he knew exactly where those rounds were coming from. Because he just turned the gun. Because mm. you could turn the gun 360. Mm. And then you lock it. Mm. And then he started firing. Mm. But now, because the Taliban were overpowering us, my boss was like, we need to get onto the radio. We called the Americans because we used to work together. Mm. So they brought in air support. That air support is to distract them for us to extract that area. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I just remember wearing my night vision zone because I don't know if you've watched movies where when it's dark, you see soldiers wearing night vision zone mm -hmm. and all you could see is green. green yeah, you yeah. could see clear. So that's what I did. And my boss was like, we need to leave. So the same, same road that I passed in the morning mm. is the same, same road that I got blown up. So I drove over something called an IED, improvised explosive device. Oh, yeah. And from there, I can't remember anything. I just found myself in hospital in the UK. Yo, it's just black. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. And the vivid, because I can see, so it's like a two hour gunfight. So it's like six, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. So 8 p.m. is probably when you're turning back the road. These guys probably had intelligence regarding where you were in your location. So they, if that ID was that, do you think that that ID was there in the morning? There are two things. Mm. The ID could have been there in the morning, but yeah, it would have shown when I was driving that place. Yeah, I didn't actually step on drive over the battery pack properly because mm -hmm. what they normally do is when they're putting these IDs. Yeah, there's always a battery pack where oh. if you put your weight on it, that's when it goes off. Mm -hmm. So that could be one. Mm -hmm. Two, it could be when we were still under fire, they would have gone there and planted those IEDs yeah. for knowing that they've already distracted us for them to do that. And it doesn't take long for them to do that. That's, and for them, the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda, they are very, very clever. Because they know our routine. Mm -hmm. They know what kind of formation we patrol. Mm -hmm. They know how long it will take us from this point, from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Because they watch over us. And the thing is that when you're out there, mm -hmm. we normally, as the British, we normally have uh, a card that you're normally given. Mm -hmm. So it has rules. So whereas if you're the Taliban mm -hmm. and you have your weapon pointed against me, I'm allowed to take you out. Mm -hmm. But if you have your weapon and you've put it on the ground, and I know you're, the, you're a Taliban, I can't take you out. Jeez. I'm curious to know, like, okay, firstly, even the way you've described the story, I'm there, like, I'm there. <clears throat> it's mm -hmm. incredible. So you said you woke up again and you're back in the UK. Yeah. Like, and you realise you've lost the, your leg. I didn't lose it immediately. Okay, so how did, how did the leg being lost happen? So what happened is my body was badly damaged. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And when I woke up, the first thing that was in my mind was uh -huh. my memory being in Afghanistan. Okay. So I started fighting with the nurses, telling them, I need my weapon, I need to go oh. back. Yeah, yeah. To the ground. Yeah. Because my memory is we were in a fighting mode. Last time, yeah. 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 So my leg was badly damaged. This is after how long? Um, so the 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 incidents in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. what's the time lapse between 36 the hours. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That extraction was... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So when I woke up, my left hand side was feeling and my back was... I was not okay. Mm. 36 hours. And then the doctor said to me, we need to amputate your leg straight away. And I said, no. Mm. Please kindly do whatever you can yeah. to save my leg. Mm. And... Um, I remember I had surgeries after surgeries after surgeries mm. and nothing was working for me. Yeah. So I just got to a point where I told them, you know what, I've, you've tried everything, mm. take it off. Mm. And that's because they had already shown me that I'll have different prosthetic legs where mm. they would help me mm. live a normal life. Right, right. Yeah, so the, uh, that, that transition was really tough. And then that's the time now my whole post-traumatic stress disorder was getting worse because mm. I attempted suicide twice yeah and all of them backfired mm. yeah is this so the there's a lot to unpack here yeah there's one thing I want to find out <clears throat> is about the the recovery process because you've gone from a fit able man mm -hmm. and now coming to terms with the fact that for the rest of my life I'm going to be having one leg and a potential yeah. uh, prosthetic one there's that and then afterwards I want to talk about the attempts you just mentioned so yeah. do, do they link yeah, they link. Okay, so how's that process? That process was tough because they link because I felt now like I'm from this fit and physically man. Mm. And now I'm useless. Mm. It was the feeling. Oh, okay. In a way that I have to tell people, please get me that. Please yeah. do this for me. Yeah. Mm. Um, please, can you drive me here? Mm. Um, please, can you take me somewhere where I just need to mm. refresh and 
get everything out of my mind. Mm. Mm. And now I felt like now I'm a bother to the society. Uh. And I felt if I'm going to be like this, why don't I just take on my own life? Wow. Where wow. I can leave these people at peace mm. and they don't have to think or care about yeah. me anymore. And this is majority of the time what was re- going through my mind was remember that you can have problems in life, right? Mm. And you can go to ask for help mm. over and over. But the more you continue asking for help, mm. it turns into something now people will start saying, you're looking for sympathy because of your situation. Oh, I see. Yeah. What was the support network? These people you're talking about at the moment, by the way. What yeah. was the support network that was you were asking things from, etc.? Like the who were these people? The support network mm. then was, at that particular moment in time, I was, I was married at that okay. particular moment in time. Because mm. I got married when I was young, mm. Mm. with my childhood sweetheart. Mm. And then um, we ended up separating. Mm. That time, my daughter was there. Mm. And for me, I felt like I didn't want them to see the vulnerable side of me. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm a soldier. I'm a professional yeah. soldier. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm in the British Army. Mm. Mm. One of the best armies in the world. Yeah. And now I've turned into someone who's kind of begging for things mm. to be done. Small things, yeah. You know, and that's why even in our normal daily lives right now, if you continue asking for help, 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 it will get to a point, those people that you ask help from, they will start mm. drifting away from you. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And mm. deep down, it could be genuine help. Mm. And so that, those are the things that were going through my mind. And I said mm. to myself, you know what? Mm. I don't want to be here anymore. Mm. I just want to take my own life. Mm. First, I jumped into my vehicle, drove on, on the motorway. I wanted to hit the bridge. And then, because I was over speeding, mm. cops blocked me and stopped me. The second time, I took tablets with a mm. bottle of gin. I finished the whole gin. Mm. Nothing happened. Mm. You know, so... So what got you out of that mental state of despair and basically recurring suicidal thoughts, what was the process that you had to put in place to lift yourself up from that situation? First of all, my daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I remember one day my daughter came to my room and she was like, Dad, no matter what you're going through, I still love you. And that that was deep for me. Yeah. You know, and I started thinking about my childhood. Mm -hmm. I was, but I was, this child who doesn't listen to my parents. Mm. And now I have a daughter here who, she's actually seeing what is happening to me. Yeah. And I said to myself, I need to be there for her. Mm. I just mm. went to the mirror and I said, you know what, from now on I'm not looking back. Mm. Regardless of how you look at me as an individual or as a person, yeah. I'm doing it for the best of the people who are around me. Mm. And that was mainly because of my daughter. That, that time my son wasn't born yet. Mm. And those are the people that I think up to date, you know. Mm-hmm. coming out of that it wasn't easy but at the same time I was I was also thinking about different scenarios where I'm in this huge military hospital where I have friends who are triple amputees mm. people who are double amputees yeah. people who are being blown up and they're brain dead mm. but when I look at them mm. their reflection yeah. of who they are there's just this bright Ness mm. that is coming from them, mm. that is so so nice that mm. I wanted to be like that. Wow! And I said to myself, I was born in Kenya, and I need to be a role model to the society where other Kenyans could see that I, you can be, you can come and overcome the worst challenge that you can ever face in life, mm. and become a voice for the voiceless. Mm. Yeah, and that that is my goal up to date. So I'm um, so okay. <clears throat> this story, my gosh. So I want to consolidate the different parts mm-hmm. of what you've told us today, right? So there's the young David, who's a football yeah. player, has to transition, and there's a bit of maybe resentment to what's happening in your life, which means the life of crime. And there's a David that goes to the army, he finds love, he's happy, he's at his pinnacle, he's fit, life is very good. Then the drastic thing happens. Then now there's a David that has a family and the trauma has made him get to the point that he's on the motorway. Mm -hmm. Through those three phases of your life, 
the transition that you've gone through, like what kind of person has that made you now in compa- as compared to the guy that used to play football? What, is the, what are the main traits that all, because I feel like, <clears throat> in my opinion, every single journey, there's a purpose mm-hmm. for per- people going through what they're going through. And I think your purpose at the moment now is you know, inspiring people, but what kind of person have you become through all of that adversity? Because as you said at the beginning, Oscar, like you've lived many lives. So what's been the, the reason, do you think, for that? I think right now, mm-hmm. I have humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never used to have humanity before. Wow. Yeah. I never. Once you pick up a weapon and mm. you're taken to the war zone, mm. you remember your feelings, your emotions, mm. you throw them out of the window. Yeah. And you're trained to become this certain person in the society where you don't value another human life. Yeah, yeah. You know? So now I'm in a position where right now I'm trying to have that humanity to the society. Right. But at the same time, I'm still finding myself making mistakes mm. that because I feel like I need people around me, mm. I'm making so many mistakes mm. where I'm learning from them. But mm. the most thing that I find that I have now is that humanity where I can see someone down mm. or I can bring myself I can go anywhere not judge anyone yeah you know regardless mm. of your position in life mm. regardless of who you are as a person mm. regardless of what you value mm. Mm. as an individual yeah I embrace everything mm. and I think what those phases have taught me is just that humanity inside me yeah, yeah. that's a lesson I think People shouldn't have to go through what you went through to come to that realization. So I'm just glad you've been able to tell us mm-hmm. that journey and come to that conclusion at the end because, like, that's what people need yeah. at the moment. Everything going on, everything on your timeline, like, the one thing that somebody that's lived many lives has said is humanity. I think if we all extract the lesson mm-hmm. without the journey that you had yeah. to go through, I think we make a better society, man. Yeah. Humanity, by your definition, is mm. a very beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah. And, and I just want to say, um, thank you for sharing your story mm. to that point. And I just wanted to know that how do you continue to share your story? Mm. What other things do you have in place right now that mm. perpetuate the story of David? Yeah. Mm. Do you write books? Is there What exactly is... How are you getting this story of yours out there? Because um, I think each and every one of us needs to learn from you and from your experiences. Mm. You know, f- f- back in the days, I never used to be someone who used to talk. Mm. I used to be quite, quiet. I don't talk a lot. And um, even my story of, because when I started sharing my story, the first time I remember was in 2017. Mm. And this happened because of a friend of mine who just told me, David, just come on radio for 10 minutes. Mm. And at that time, I actually didn't know what my purpose was mm. in this life. Mm. I was just living life and day to day saying, you know what, let me just live life because I've been through this, this, this and this. And then when I came to Kenya again, after sharing my story, one of, cause one of the gang members that I knew, he said to me, David, why don't you ever share your story about you're the one who used to store guns for people, mm. for our gang. And I said to him, I'm afraid to share that because I don't know how the public and the society will take me. Yeah. And he said to me, look, David, we've all made mistakes and there are people who've made worse mistakes than you. Mm-hmm. But if you explain and tell people why you used to do this, it will save someone else mm-hmm. who's actually doing the same thing that you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've found that when you tell your story, because each one of us, we all have stories. Mm. But it's how you tell your story. There are people who are ready to speak about it, people who are not ready to speak Mm. about it. But I just came to realize that sharing your story might be a journey and a life for someone else. Wow. Mm. Mm. And there's no doubt that your story is going to be something that anyone who's watching this and anyone who's listening to this of our podcast is going to be heavily impacted by. Whether you're whatever race, color or creed, I think this is one of those stories that's much like the experience of war. Mm. It doesn't matter 
where you come from mm. or who you're listening to us where you're listening to us from or where you're experiencing us from mm. this is honestly one of the most powerful stories i've ever had in my life uh, captivating from beginnings yeah. and and it, yeah yeah i just i know this um at the end of hearing something as incredible as your story there is a traditional man talk where your growth seems to have come from experience right yeah but i'm sure along that journey along the downs the lows the highs there's been things that you've consumed that have aided you to become this person and the encouragement to share the story so i want to know one thing that you've read listened to or just consumed that's been transformative and helped you maybe when it was that dark place alongside your daughter helping you whether it was during in the army or something somebody told you that's that you want somebody to hear or go and consume as well just just one by the way just one just one pick one <laughs> just one man that's a tough question i know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a tough question um what have i consumed oh man you book a song mm. podcast anything a poem a, a poem yeah there's this guy who was a us marine mm-hmm. and he was given a medal of honor by barack obama mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this guy they were watching over um, their base mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and um, a Taliban crawled up to them mm-hmm. and threw a grenade on top of the building where they were mm-hmm. and there were only two two of them and this guy what he did was he took his backpack and lied on top of the jumped on top of the grenade to try and to save his brother's life. Wow. And when he did that, he was badly damaged. Yeah. Completely damaged. Mm. To an extent where I think he lost his eye, his just his body was completely damaged. Mm. And when I was listening to him and I was listening to his story and the things that he's doing right now. Mm. I consumed everything that I had from him. Wow. And I said to myself, you know what? This is what life is all about. Mm. Putting your life out there to save another human life. Yeah. Yeah. And for me I said to myself, I'm going to put my story out there mm. to save as many people as I can. Mm. Mm. And to by doing it, I don't I'm not doing it for my own benefit. Mm. But I'm doing it because that is my purpose. I found my purpose. Wow. Yeah. I never knew what my purpose was. Mm. Mm. But now I know what my purpose is, is in life. Mm. Wow. You know. Yeah. And yeah. by consuming what this guy went through to an extent where he couldn't actually even recognize his own family members. that just sank in deep with me. Mm. And I said I need to consume this. Mm. I need to consume what this guy did and I want that to be my life. Yeah. Every yeah. day that I step out of the house, I want to live with a happy smile despite yeah. me fighting demons mm. every night with post traumatic stress disorder. I will not let those things define the person that I'm supposed to be. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What was the name of that man? I forgot his name. But you can find it after and we'll Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll find it after. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. all we can say um as a podcast and as the viewers that are going to watch this is thank you. Um please keep doing it. Please keep sharing the story because I've I've learned. I'm sure people have learned as well and the inspiration that's come from your journey is incredible. So thank you first for taking the time to come here sit on the chair and um I hope the guys listening and watching have enjoyed it too. Take a glass of water, take some breaths and just digest what we've heard today because it's been It's been incredible. You so. you are mm. you are the you are the embodiment of why we started this podcast. Mm. Your story and the experience that you've given us mm. and the journey that you've made me and you like walk through with you today is one of the most I think personally most impactful experiences of my life. Mm. So thank you so much David mm. um, and thank you for your candor thank you for your honesty um and thank you for making yourself vulnerable even today mm. and even admitting to battling your own mental health issues 
while you're still at this stage of your life mm. is something that as an African man and as a black man, we don't see enough of. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time um, mm. and to give your flowers. And I hope that uh, wherever you go and as you continue to tell your story, um, that the people who listen to you and hear you and experience you understand that they are going through something that is truly transformational. Mm. And that is my my very <coughs> honest take. For me, I would say thank yeah. you so much for having me because even what you guys are doing is really incredible. You know, bringing people on set and people sharing different views of life. That is how we learn and that is how we overcome adversities in this life. Mm. Because for you to have resilience, you also need to hear someone else speaking about something different that you've never had before. Mm. And so for me and to everyone on set, mm. it's just, I'm praying for you guys. Keep on doing what you're doing. Mm. It's an amazing platform. Mm. And may God bless you all, man. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. And that concludes the season. Um, that's all, that concludes the season. <laughs> uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking about it. So see you next season. And thanks for watching mantalk.ke. Like, share, subscribe. Always. Peace. <laughs>